so much older then I'm younger than that now I'm Mark Middleton and this is Growing Bolder, the radio show and podcast that proves every week that our belief systems control our behavior and to a large degree they determine our future. Tragically though, most of us have extremely limiting beliefs when it does come to growing older. Uh, and I'm not just talking about adults, I'm talking about people of all ages. And it really is understandable because we do live in an ageist culture and we have to battle social norms. So, what are social norms? Well, social norms are the unwritten rules about how we're supposed to act. They keep us in line, and in most cases, they are important and they're valuable, with one notable exception, and that's when it comes to aging. Social norms become the conformity police telling us what is age-appropriate behavior, and it turns out that social norms are even more powerful at shaping our behavior than are our own beliefs. You might believe that aging in a certain way is possible, but if that belief is contrary to social norms, you likely won't act upon your belief. And this is why changing the way that we age, changing the trajectory of our lives is extremely difficult. We have to change our personal belief system in the face of the constant bombardment of ageist messaging, and then we have to maintain and act upon those beliefs in the face of established societal and cultural norms. But here's the bottom line. There is no such thing as age-appropriate behavior. So stop looking for age-related cues about how you're supposed to behave. What's expected of older people? Well, John F. Kennedy said this, Conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. And as you guys know, it's well documented that when young children are told that they're ignorant or they don't have the capacity to understand something, they quickly internalize that belief until it does become a reality or until a caring parent or a great teacher intervenes and helps them learn otherwise. And the exact same thing happens when we're adults, but almost no one ever intervenes and convinces us that we're capable of doing far more than our culture has decided is reasonable or appropriate. And let me make this clear. I'm not talking about setting athletic records. I'm not talking about writing books or discovering a cure for cancer, because no matter your age, no matter your shape, no matter your condition, you have the ability to find happiness, to experience contentment to feel whole and useful. The challenge is that it is nearly impossible to imagine a future self outside of the accepted and then internalized boundaries of what's possible. And once again, tragically, these boundaries have been drawn, they've been promoted, they've been marketed by an ageist culture and reinforced by ageist social norms. So let's get with it. Our first guest today leads national policy initiatives which impact the health of all Americans. She led the development of the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, which was released back in 2018. Most recently, she wrote the National Youth Sports Strategy in response to a presidential executive order. She is a clinical exercise physiologist and a registered dietitian and shares with Bill Schaefer her interest in the intersection of diet and exercise. Here's Bill with Katrina Piercy. I was an athlete, played soccer through college, 
And so grew up being active and started learning more about, oh, what I'm eating makes a difference in how I'm playing. And so I actually went to school to study both fields. So I have a PhD in both disciplines and I get to combine both of them um, every day in my work in the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, which is a wonderful opportunity. Wow. Well, before I steer you one way or another, which may be close to the target or far from it, what do you wish we knew from what you see? What do you wish you could grab us by the lapels and tell us? <laughs> well, I think there's so much great information out there. It can be kind of confusing to weed through it, but there's a lot of potential of how we can impact our own bodies and our own health. And a lot of what we can do day in and day out in terms of moving our bodies and putting good food in our bodies can really make a big difference. And we have an opportunity every day to make some of these choices. And it, it all can really add up. It doesn't mean making drastic changes, but it means over time, these little choices can really help. I guess the key to almost all of this is that, you know, we kind of live in a society where we kind of like to take the pill or we wait till the doctor writes the prescription. But there is so much that we can do. There are so many ways we can be proactive. And, you know, who knows if we can prolong our lives, but we can sure give ourselves more good days than we ever thought possible. Yes, definitely. And some people have said even that that is exercise, that magic pill. Um, and we have some really great data that links physical activity and healthy eating to a number of different health, health outcomes. Even if you look at like the top leading causes, top 10 leading causes of death, six of them are actually related to what we eat and physical activity. So things like heart disease, cancer, COVID-19, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, these are all linked. And so um, in some ways, I would argue that we do know some of what can, can help us in not a pill form, but in terms of making some of those choices each day. So I guess the key then, Katrina, is, is you know, I hear these things too, and, and I'll, I'll learn a lot of this stuff while I'm sitting on the couch eating a bag of potato chips. So how do, even if I know it in my head, how do we go about convincing ourselves to get off the couch, to get out, to get active, to, to be engaged, to be socially uh, involved? Have you seen anything that works there? Yeah. Well, first, it's hard. Let's just acknowledge that. And so it, it's making all of these little choices over time. And, and part of what we do on the government side is our work is taking all of that ev evidence and synthesizing that into guidance and saying, here's what we know is the best evidence in terms of physical activity, in terms of eating healthy. But then we go a step further with that and we say, how do we do this? How do you put this into real life? And so our Move Your Way Communications campaign, we developed that along with the second edition of the physical activity guidelines for Americans. And that kind of takes the guidelines apart. And so we think about what are these small steps to get started? So if you're watching TV, if you're watching something that you can't fast forward through the commercials, could you get up and do some air squats while you're watching that? Or maybe you hold a plank in between, or maybe you're doing dishes and you're moving or doing chores while you're watching that. Thinking about these small things that you can maybe put into your day, taking a walk to the mailbox or running errands, um, if you can park farther away, these are the little things that we try to help encourage people to add into their day, because we know when we tell people, you know, find 30 minutes, a block of time to be able to do that, it's really difficult. So I like to think about it as breaking things into smaller chunks, five minutes or less at a time of these little ways to break things up. When you say it like that, it just sounds so doable. I, I think sometimes we... We intimidate ourselves. You know, we start thinking, well, you know, if I have to get active, that means I have to join a gym or that means I have to run a 5K or that means I have to start lifting heavy weights. But 
active aging can mean a lot of different things. So what does active aging mean to you? Great question. And you've hit on exactly why we developed the Move Your Way Communications campaign, because the mindset, a lot of times when you say physical activity, people think exercise and they think hard, sweating. I need to be in a gym and wearing the right clothing or the right shoes or the right equipment. And it's really intimidating and honestly not feasible for many people. But we intentionally use the term physical activity, not exercise. And the idea that you can be active in a variety of places and a variety of ways throughout your day and wearing all sorts of different attire. So there might be opportunities within what you're already doing to find ways to put it in. And really, at the end of the day, this should be something fun that you enjoy doing. If you don't like running, you don't need to be a runner. But maybe you like walking. Maybe there's a friend that you could catch up with um, on a walk instead of meeting for dinner or meeting for coffee where you're sitting down. Maybe you're you're walking and you're chatting. We found that's one of the best ways for people to keep up with it is finding something that they actually enjoy doing so that it doesn't feel like a punitive piece or a punishment. And those are ways that then it becomes part of the lifestyle, just something that you enjoy doing or a way to socialize or be with friends or connect with family members. There's lots of ways to be active as long as you find something that that may work for you and your body. I think another way to, uh, and that's a great point, another way to convince us to do it is if we see a benefit, if we feel uh, something different. And that does happen with physical activity. We all kind of get now that being in shape is better than being out of shape. But help us understand that connection between physical activity and improving our diet and actually preventing disease. Yes. So that's one of the things that we've really leaned on some of these messages um, in the recent years to talk about some of these acute benefits, because we found it's really hard to motivate people when you say, oh, if you're active now, this may reduce your risk for heart disease 20, 30 years down the road, depending on the age of someone. And so for many people, that's not motivating. I'm not going to go take a walk today, so I might not have an event later. But some of these more immediate benefits are things that might be more motivating for people. So we've actually done more research to look at what happens physiologically when you're doing activity and just one bout, actually, we're seeing differences. So being active, you can start to see benefits in terms of like mood and well-being. So if you've ever had that point where you're like just having one of those days or it's not working or stress levels are high and you take a five, 10 minute walk usually you might be feeling a little better after that. Just getting up and moving can help in terms of those areas. The other things being active that day are usually sleeping better that night. And it also can lower your blood pressure immediately. So there's some of those short-term benefits. And what we try to do is think about if we can stack those. And so if you start to see some of those short-term benefits that then over time will accrue and with regular physical activity, that's when you see some of these long-term pieces in terms of the reduced risk for all of these chronic diseases, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, many cancers, and reducing the risk even of symptoms if you have it already or the progression of it. So if your blood pressure may be a little bit high, doing regular physical activity can help bring it down so you're not getting into the hypertension range. Yeah, and that's just, uh, that. it's even in addition to the fact that being active or being out helps keep us more mobile. It makes us more solid on our feet, a little more confident to go out and do more things. So it's almost like it just kind of snowballs its way down. Yes. We talked a little earlier that diet and nutrition are two of the most important things that we can do to protect our health. Is that an exaggeration? I mean, how much of a difference are we? Are we just talking about a slight difference here? Or is this really an important thing for us to grasp? I 
I think it's really important. I mentioned earlier that six of the 10 leading causes of death are linked to what you're eating and physical activity levels. And so especially for an older adult, when you start thinking about mobility challenges and functional status and being able to maintain activities of daily living, being active and eating well makes a really huge difference, especially for older adults. They have all the benefits that adults see in terms of the chronic disease risk, but particularly for, for older adults, we start thinking about things like the falls risk. And so doing regular physical activity can actually reduce the risk that you do fall or the extent of injury if you were to have a fall. And so that's why physical activity, and that's especially incorporating things like muscle strengthening activity and multi-component physical activity. And so that's when you're bringing in the balance component into that aerobic and muscle strengthening activity. So things like a variety of different sports, if you might be lifting some weights and standing on one foot, so you're challenging different parts of your body, we see a lot of benefits that can actually help older adults just to have a better quality of life, reduce risk for healthcare um, costs as well. So those two things really are a tremendous opportunity for older adults, especially to have a better life as they age. You know, there's a there's a bit of an ageist attitude to, to some of these things, too. You know, if, a, if you're a five-year-old and you fall down, you don't have adults kind of freak out and run to see if you're okay. But if, you know, I just, I just turned 65, you know, if I fall down, people come running out hoping I don't jump up and hit them with a lawsuit. But I think that, I think that as we age, we're we're, we're tougher. We're stronger than maybe even we realize. It's okay. You don't have to wrap people in bubble wrap. It's not necessarily time to slide into that recliner and, and, and be safe and sound. Get out. Take some risks. Have an adventure. How, how close is that to where we should be? We'll continue our chat with Katrina Piercy in just a minute and hear what the government thinks is the beginning of old age. And also coming up, we'll dip into the GB archives for an inspiring chat with a guy who has won Oscars, Grammys, Golden Globes, and Emmys. And we're going to share a new model for primary health care that promises to transform the way we receive care. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health Well 65 Plus, primary care designed for those on Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans, featuring 30 to 60 minute appointments and 24 hour care team access from a nationally renowned network. Advent Health Well 65 Plus, primary care that gets better with age. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. You know, there is no question that we all know that more is possible as we age, but what about the government? What about the policymakers? Do they know it? And more importantly, are they promoting it? Are they enabling it? Based upon our conversation with Katrina Piercy, the top physical activity and nutrition advisor in the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, the answer seems to be yes, they get it. Bill Schaefer now continues his chat with Piercy, who says the government considers 65 the beginning of old age, but she admits that's not the reality for many. I think in years past, we kind of had this mentality of as you get older and then you just start doing less and less and less. And if you look at older adults and on the federal government side, we use older adults as, as 65 and older, realizing, oh, well, age is a number. Um, and there's a range of functional abilities and capabilities frankly, of everyone. Um, but especially in terms of older adults, there's 65-year-olds that are running marathoners. 
running marathons and are faster than me. And there's 65 year olds that may have trouble walking up a flight of stairs. And so there's a wide range of that. But one of the benefits with eating well and physical activity is that it's never too late to get started. So even if you haven't been active previously, there's always an opportunity to start accruing some of these benefits. And so if you are getting older and it isn't something that you were playing sports or or active previously, the body can learn all of these things and you can start to see some of these benefits as well. But we definitely should be encouraging people to be active at any age um, and seeing a lot of benefits for everybody really to be eating well um, and moving their body in a variety of ways. And I think the beauty there, Katrina, is that, I mean, I always look at it as a definition of exercise as something more than you did yesterday. So don't compare yourself, you know, to the guy that mows the yard every week necessarily. Just see where you are and see if you could take it another step forward. You know, if only there were some guidelines, some implementation strategies for us to follow. Actually, we have just that. So one of the things that that we do on the federal government side, our role is to develop guidelines for the country, as I mentioned earlier. So we have physical activity guidelines. We have dietary guidelines for Americans. So for older adults, the recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity each week, two days of monthly strength activity, and the incorporation of multi-component physical activity, which I mentioned is important, adding in that balance piece. But that seems like a big number and a lot of pieces. And how do we do that? Really, it's about getting started. The biggest bang for your buck is actually going from nothing to something. And so thinking about how do we help support older adults in particular to get started or to restart and to encourage them back into it. So that's basically what was in our report of trying to spell out, here are some strategies, here's what works, and here's how everyone in the community can help encourage older adults to be more active. Do you, do you know what I... It just kind of dawned on me. Our physical health is based on our mental health. The stronger we feel mentally, the more likely we are to be out socializing. And the more we socialize, the more active we are. So it, it almost seems like this is a whole person thing. We're, we're talking about how to empower people to make a difference in their communities, to, to live the most fulfilling lives they can. That's basically, in a nutshell, what you're telling us. Exactly. And there's some really great linkages with physical activity and mental health. And so that is a growing area of science that we've really enjoyed kind of watching some of those pieces. There's some new trials looking at the connection there and what are the benefits with and without medication in terms of treatment side of things, but also just from a preventative piece of things. We also know that being physically active, especially if if you like that social connection, that can help help someone that may be more isolated, especially older adults that may be living on their on their own. And that was part of the reason why we selected older adults for the mid-course report. We were thinking about, one, this is a population that historically has low rates of meeting the guidelines. So less than 15% of older adults, so that's 65 and older, are meeting that 150-minute threshold each week and two days of muscle straining. So huge opportunity in this age group to help encourage more activity. But we knew coming out of Um, the pandemic, that there was, for a lot of older adults, a lot of isolation and loneliness and wanted to encourage these opportunities for social connection and for movement. And, you know, then it might not feel like that you're going to go do something, but more of, hey, I'm going to go meet a friend and we're going to take a walk or we're going to go try out a water aerobics class together. And when we can both look silly and, and enjoy it with a buddy, sometimes that makes it a lot easier to get started. 
it's the best kind of activity there is, you know, when you don't feel like doing it and your friends call you up and go, what do you mean? Get off your butt and come on, let's go. You know, we got things yes. to do. So uh, those are things to do. How about things to eat? You know, I, one of the things that happens is when you're living on a fixed income, one quick way to send yourself into debt is by trying to eat all organic, healthy foods if you walk through the store lately. So how do we improve our diets if we're on a budget? Great question. First, let me just acknowledge it's hard. The biggest thing to be doing when you're thinking about planning for that is is making a plan and doing it ahead of time. If you're already hungry and going through the grocery store or you're out running errands and then, oh my gosh, I'm hungry, you're going to go for the fastest thing that's right in front of you, which may not be the healthiest. And so planning ahead is probably going to be your best advice to, to be thinking about the budget side of things. We work closely with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to develop the dietary guidelines, and then they also lead MyPlate, which is the consumer campaign, which helps unpack the guidelines and think about how do we put these into action. So planning is the first start of it, thinking about what you are shopping for, whether you can be shopping for things in bulk or when they're on sale, looking for things that are frozen or canned goods. Um, there's lots of really great options that are there, but I will say that the planning piece of this and starting ahead is probably gonna be your best bet. The other thing to think about, depending on your climate and where you are, but think about whether you might be able to grow some plants at home. Uh, maybe something that's on a patio, maybe something that works indoors. That could be another option to think about from a cost saving standpoint, but you probably need to be creative and thinking ahead can really help with that as well. And it can be super confusing too, you know, eat egg yolks, don't eat egg yolks, uh, all, all kinds of conflicting information out there. What, what are some good first steps then, uh, aside from planning, you know, maybe while we're in the store, to help us eat our way to better health? Great question. So if you think about my plate, if you're familiar with that visual, the idea that you should be eating a variety of different foods from each food group. Now, it's important and part of why we set this up with the guidelines that this is not a prescription, eat X amount of this food each day and this food, that you can tailor the guidelines to your cultural preferences, your family preferences, your budget, you know, what your kids may be eating as well. But thinking about getting that balance of the whole grains, of fruits, vegetables, fat-free or low-fat dairy, and oils, all of these are important for a healthy diet. And Ideally, yes, you're looking at your plate for each meal and how does this how does this look over the course of the day and you're eating multiple times. So thinking where are these opportunities, maybe if you're not eating more vegetables, you know, for breakfast or having a breakfast smoothie, are there ways to have more at lunch or at dinner time? But again, there's a great opportunity every time you're choosing a meal or snack to think about how can I make this a little bit healthier? How can I make sure we've got a fruit or a vegetable into that? And trying not to think about it as I have to overhaul everything, but what are some small swaps that you might be able to make that then can be a part of your routine as you're leading towards a healthy diet? What a difficult, what a difficult job you have. What a, a what a difficult challenge it is. And and part of the reason I say that is uh, as you talk and we talk about quote unquote older Americans, as you said, that can be anything from the uh, 80-year-old marathon runner to people who are frail and elderly and just trying to regain their balance or, 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 or find things like that. From your position, you really have a unique view of what's happening out there with this demographic now. What is it like these days for older people? Are there more frail elderly? Are there more people that are active in adopting these lifestyle changes? What do you see? 
Well, I think it's still, it's a very big range. And I think that was a piece when we started looking at the work for the Midcourse Report of, of really how do you provide guidance for a very large percentage of the population? So anytime we develop federal guidance, we're trying to think about this from a population health lens and what is the latest science? And so looking at the literature and what do we know in general for older adults? And so then we think about how do we apply that and what does this look like? And how do we help this population as a whole live longer and be healthier and enjoy that better quality of life. And so there's lots of different ways and then lots of tailoring that needs to be done, you know, kind of at that next level of implementation, whether that's with a healthcare provider or at the community level or, you know, programs that can specifically help an older adult kind of wherever they are and then help them either maintain or sustain or improve their overall health in terms of what they're eating and their physical activity level. But I see a lot of tremendous potential we have a population that is aging well and that is living longer. And so I think because of that, there is even more opportunity to take care of our bodies so that we can keep doing these things and we could live longer, ideally independently, um, which can also reduce the healthcare costs that are a big issue for older adults as well. Absolutely. And hopefully people listening, take this individually. You know, don't don't look at it as a group. Listen to this as if she's talking to you. You know, what can you do to slightly improve your diet, slightly improve your activity, become more social and and see what the benefits can be for you? Because there are a lot of us out here and I'm one of them, too. You know, people feel like, well, I was never athletic or my knees hurt or I have a sore back or I don't run or I don't bend very well. So maybe that's not for me. But that's not the truth, right? Isn't the truth totally the opposite? That if you have a weight problem, the gym may be the perfect place for you. If your knees hurt, the treadmill might be the the thing you really need to go for. Exactly. And it really is something of figuring out what works for you. The best activity, I get asked this question a lot of like, what exactly should I be doing? And I say, well, what do you enjoy doing? Because if you really dislike running, then running is not going to be fun and enjoyable for you. But do you want to be active or do you want to be able to keep up with your grandkids? Well, then that might be a great motivating factor. And then so let's think about how might you might be active with them. Are you playing tag with them or taking them on a walk to a playground or finding other ways to move your body? There really is not a one size fits all. But the, the overall message for everybody is really finding ways to move your body and eating well every day can have these huge cumulative benefits. So it does take a little time and a little trial and error of kind of finding what might work for you and your body. And that might change. You might've been a runner and then now you maybe aren't as well and your your knees are like, yep, nope, we're not doing that. But maybe there's something else. Maybe you're water jogging in a pool if you have access to a pool. Or maybe you're walking or maybe you're riding a bike. So I think uh, it's really important to consider what you enjoy doing and what works for your body. The best thing too is to think about starting slow and progressing. And so that's a good message for anybody at any age. If you're coming back from an illness or an injury or just getting started, you can always add on more later. But the quickest way to kind of stop that activity is to say, okay, I'm going and I'm just going to out the door and go for a run uh, for a couple miles. Your body is going to feel that. So thinking about how do we build up on that? Let's start with a brisk walk and maybe a minute of of jogging and kind of gradually over time, you're building up to maybe doing a run or doing a race if that's something that you might enjoy. But giving your time, your body time to acclimate. Same thing with, with changing some of your eating plans. If you're starting cold turkey, we're completely changing everything on the next day. 
a lot of people that that's hard to stick with. But maybe if you're making some of these gradual swaps over time and kind of looking at, okay, how can I add more vegetables in? How do I make some of these swaps to whole grains? That often feels a little better. It might be a little easier to get started. It's a question of setting yourself up for success and not putting too much pressure on yourself to you've, where you feel like you fail. That's such a great point. And before we go, I want to give you a chance, since you're really on a roll, give us, our, give us a 30-second pep talk uh, from your point of view of, uh, of what we need to do, what we can do. So I'll say it is never too late to get started or to restart in terms of being physically active and eating healthy. Every day we have a fresh start and a fresh opportunity to make different choices. And it doesn't have to be drastic changes. It could be five minutes. Heck, you could be listening to this podcast and maybe taking a walk while you're listening or thinking about what your next meal might look like and how you might be able to make a swap in there. But we all have a great opportunity to take care of our bodies so our bodies can take care of us and we can have long, active and high quality of life. Bottom line, folks, your best healthcare advocate is you. You have more power, more control than you realize when it comes to your health and well-being. The choices that we make go a long way into what the rest of our lives will be like. And that's just great. It's important advice from the clinical exercise physiologist and registered dietitian from the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. Our thanks to Katrina Piercy. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate this. You know, there is no question, there is a rapidly transforming culture of aging, and in truth, the government is typically way behind any cultural change and certainly never leads it. But when you listen to policymakers like Katrina Piercy, you do begin to think that not only is more possible in our individual lives, but also in the way our government agencies support happy, healthy, and active aging. Coming up, a songwriting icon who battled drug and alcohol dependence for many years. He's now been sober for more than 30 years. He's still working, still a big name in the entertainment industry, but as a licensed drug and rehabilitation counselor, his greatest passion is helping others battle substance abuse. This is Growing Bolder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Welcome back to Growing Boulder as we share a clip from a GB classic, part of a rare interview with one of the most beloved and respected music creators ever. Paul Williams has won multiple awards, Oscars, Grammys, Golden Globes, and Emmys. He's been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. His songs include things like We've Only Just Begun, You and Me Against the World, an old-fashioned love song, and dozens of others. His songs have been recorded by Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, David Bowie, 
Tony Bennett, the Carpenters, Diana Ross, Luther Vandross, Willie Nelson, and even Kermit the Frog. Let's pick it up with Paul sharing the fact that he actually started out as an actor. I was an actor for very briefly. I couldn't make a living at it. I used to joke that, that I looked like a real kid until you put me next to uh, I looked like a kid until you put me next to a real kid. And I looked like a kid with a hangover. It was, you know, the, and then in the 70s, I rolled into that sort of Haley Mills lookalike period. <laughs> it was not an easy task for, you know, I, I, you know, although I had my mind, I was, you know, you know, God wanted me to be a leading man, but it just didn't happen. And the, the gift in it is that, is that for my entire life, I, I now observe that no is usually a gift. I did not get the career I wanted as an actor. I got so depressed. I started writing songs and, and, uh, and, and found, you know, found what I really can do. Yeah, Paul, I've heard you tell the story, and sometimes we kind of gloss over that. How, how did you just teach yourself to play? You started writing songs, and then all of a sudden you're dropping out of the sky. I mean, these aren't just nice songs. These are unbelievable songs. Well, I had great collaborators, too. And, you know, I mean, every now and then, you know, I, I wrote a lot of songs that, that I wrote words and music to. But, but especially in the beginning, I wrote with a lot of amazing composers. There was a guy named Roger Nichols that I was teamed up with early on. Roger and I wrote We've Only Just Begun, Rainy Days and Mondays. Oh, you know, most of the Carpenters things I wrote with, with, with Roger. There was a wonderful man named Kenny Asher who played piano for me. And one day, sitting in England, when our, our work permits hadn't arrived and we couldn't go into the studio to do a TV show, he and I sat and started doodling around, you know, just, you know, kind of having fun around the piano and wound up writing You and Me Against the World that day. So the, the, these trained, wonderful composers that I worked with had a, a big influence on me. And also the fact that when I was a kid, whenever, you know, I discovered rock and roll when I was in my 30s. But, but, but during in my, my teens, back in the 50s, I was listening to the, the songs of Cole Porter and Gershwin and, and Irving Berlin and all the great, I must say, ASCAP songwriters that, you know, that uh, I'm happy to, to represent today. But the the Great American Songbook was kind of where I went to learn about my craft. And, you know, I don't know if anybody will ever adequately explain the the emotional connection that, that we all have with music, you know, how it touches us very, very deep in our psyche. But, you know, your music in particular, I mean, you wrote the songs that I'm certain people come up to you all the time and say, man, that song changed my life. How does it feel to know that, that you've created these moments that people will never forget? That's that's what I call heart heart payment. You know, somebody comes up and says, you know, when I was a little girl, the first song I learned to play on piano was was Rainbow Connection, and uh, and my dad sat next to me on the piano and taught it to me. That means I was a part of of somebody's life at that moment. That's a wonderful gift for a songwriter. Or we got married and we've only just begun. Or Evergreen, that was our first dance. It is is a heart payment. To me, there are three payments that we receive as, as songwriters, as composers, probably as artists in, in any level, any, any creative uh, uh, activity. The, the first one is you learn something about yourself. You know, I sit down and I'm writing these, you know, basically codependent anthems. You know, they're <laughs> ouch mommy songs, pick me up and love me, I'm nothing without you. I've always said that I have a, a God-shaped hole in the center of my chest, <laughs> and I've been writing about it for years, and wow. I tried to fill that hole with a lot of things relationships, drugs, booze, you, you name it. But but the fact is that I started out writing about that pain or that loneliness or whatever. And I think that you know, the, for, that's the first real gift of songwriting. The second, of course, is you can make a viable living at it. And that's part of my work as president of ASCAP is to work really hard to make sure the kids coming up today can continue to make a viable living with their music. But, but that... 
the, searching for that that connection to another human being through the music. The real the real gift for me was, and it comes in, in that third that heart payment is that we're really not that different. If I write honestly about what's going on in the center of my chest, what I find again and again is that that's when people relate to it, and that we're not really that different. That we are we are in fact all connected, and that's that's that sense of of being a part of the family of man. Is, is a part of that third heart payment gift. And it's, it's just, you're a little less lonely when somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, I got married to your song. We're not together anymore, of course, and I send <laughs> divorce payments every month, but we got married to your song. Hey, Paul, let's talk for just a minute about your, you know, your, your growing bolder moment. And I guess by that, I mean, you decided to quit drinking at the age of 49. I mean, how did you do that all of a sudden? What triggered that resolve inside you that made you say, you know, this time I'm really done? You know what? It was a, a long process. That the, 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 you know, the 70s were so so productive, and, and in the 80s, I just began to hide and my addiction. And I think I developed a real addiction to celebrity. That's part of what the, the film Paul Williams Still Alive is about. Is that is that for the audience that's watching, you know, watching Gaga and Britney and whatever, you know, the, you know, and, and wanting to be a part of their lives and. and and for and for the for the uh, the person with the camera on them, there's a, for some of us there's an addiction, and I think I got better at showing off than at showing up, and 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 essentially ignored my craft as a writer, and, and all of a sudden I'm showing up on the Gong Show, and and you know any I did 48 Tonight Shows, I remember six, you know, mm. but the but the drugs and alcohol and the addiction to the drugs and alcohol, you know, and it was a big cocaine habit and and vodka. Uh, eventually, that that addiction outran the addiction to the camera, and before you know it, I was by myself, peeking out the Venetian blinds at three in the morning, looking for the tree police. I knew they were out there. And what eventually happened is I had a full-blown psychotic episode in Oklahoma City, and uh, continued to drink for a couple of weeks. And in a blackout, I called a doctor and I said that I needed help, and he sent me to rehab. I actually did rehab twice. The second time was was the time that that I did it for myself, and I had that amazing gift of instead of, of coming to, I woke up, and the, the sense of community that I felt in recovery was so intense. It was, you know, for the first time in my life, I felt as if I was surrounded by, by people who had been through what I'd been through. They were there to help me. They put their hand out and said, you know, said, when a hand is needed to, you know, to, to recover from drugs and alcohol, our hand will be there, and and the message I got was pass it on. I went to UCLA and, and got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor and, and uh, entered into what I refer to as the Pauli Lama period of my life, where, <laughs> where uh, I worked in recovery. I worked for the Musician's Assistance Program for a few years and eventually returned back. Into, I'm still, you know, there are two things that I'm intensely passionate about. One is recovery and the other one is music creators' rights. And, and I spent a lot of time on the road in both capacities right now, and, and I'm, I'll be 22 years sober in March. It's the greatest gift I've ever been given, and the fact is that for anybody who's struggling with, with an addiction right now, there is help for them, that recovery works, that you know that, that you treat the whole family at this point, but, but there, is, there is hope for the hopeless, and there's, you know, there's a couple of organizations listed at the front of your phone book that can be immense help, and that's all I'll say about them. That was part of our interview with the legendary Paul Williams, who has now been sober for more than 34 years, and he travels the world speaking about recovery, trying to help others. 
He's now 83 years old. He's still composing. And as president and chairman of the board of the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, that's ASCAP, he's one of the leading spokespersons and advocates for music creators helping defend and protect composers' copyrights from AI and other infringements in the digital age. When you're over 65, you get Medicare, and the model for many years has been called fee-for-service. What that means is that the government reimburses doctors for each and every service that they provide. And that puts the financial incentive on quantity and not quality, which is why some primary care providers actually see more than 30 patients a day for about 10 to 15 minutes each and do little more than refer to specialists. But there's a new model that's called value-based care, in which doctors are reimbursed based upon health outcomes, how well they treat you, how well you do. We recently learned about Advent Health Well 65 Plus, a primary care practice that is now transforming healthcare for seniors. The age wave is upon us. Tens of thousands of Americans are turning 65, 75, and 85 every day, many in Florida, which now has the nation's highest percentage of adults 65 and older at 21% and growing. This dramatic increase has strained primary care practices throughout the state. Many are unable to provide timely appointments, and when they can fit someone into their schedule, it's a rushed appointment with a doctor who might be seeing as many as 30 to 40 patients every day. To solve this problem, Advent Health has created Well 65 Plus, a mission-driven commitment to deliver individualized whole-person care to seniors. The number one differentiator I think is access. If you would call me in my last practice and say, I need an appointment with Dr. Rogers, they would say, either let me check with him and see if he'll double book to see you for that, or he can see you in two, three weeks or physical two, three months. And now we have capacity to get people in that day. The providers are much more satisfied. They're less harried. They are not seeing 30, 50 patients a day. They're seeing 10 to 12 patients a day, able to give their full attention to the patients, take care of their needs outside the walls of the clinic, as well as inside the exam room. And you've likely never seen exam rooms like those at Well 65 Plus. What we wanted to do is make our offices a place where you were more comfortable. When you come into a wellness suite like this, the physician will have everything at their fingertips that they might need for that visit so the patient doesn't get moved around. Sorry, we have to take you to this room to do that procedure. No, we do everything here. Sorry, you have to go up to the front and check out. No, we'll do everything here. It's built around what can make the experience right for the patient, what can make it most convenient for them. Advent Health Well 65 Plus surrounds patients with a care team that includes social workers to assist with mental health care, personal health coaches, care coordinators to handle scheduling, registered nurses, pharmacists, and on-site lab technicians. It's a one-stop shop that's designed to keep patients from running all over town to get tests and see specialists, a new health care model designed to keep patients out of hospitals and emergency rooms. We give you access to care here where we try to do the right, the right care in the right place. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures.
67 years ago, Anthony Gordine walked into a recording studio at the age of 17 and little Anthony was born. Gordine is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's considered one of the greatest R&B singers of all time, but the journey hasn't been easy. Let's go boulder backstage and learn why at age 82, little Anthony says he's now happier than ever. Come on, man. I, 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 I'm just a singer, man. That's all I am. I, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I have the same worries, the same fears, and the same challenges. I've learned that. And what I've learned is, is that I'm just glad to be here. Jerome Anthony Gordine. Little Anthony, what a life, what a career, and what a journey. From the projects in Brooklyn to the Rock Hall of Fame, one of the greatest R&B singers of all time. And his first hit came at the age of 16. on my pillow debuted his unmistakable sound but in the studio they struggled to get the vocal just right until legendary producer George Goldner had an idea and I remember seeing Mr. Goldner up in the, in, the, in the control room looking at me through the mirror and I'm in the thing and he says hold 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 he comes outside and says looks at me and he said who's your favorite singer well that King Cole because that's what was it that's what's happening those days he said, you ever hear how Nat enunciates every word is distinct? I want you to sing like you talk. But I'm trying to sing like James Brown and everybody else. And then I thought, Nat Cole, what would Nat Cole? They try to tell us where to young every syllable. I said, you don't remember me, but I remember you. When I did that and the band's playing, the guys are singing, George, you can see George going to Buko, in his chair. Oh my gosh. That's when little Anthony was born. That's when he was born. It was the first of 19 hits in 15 years. But little Anthony paid a price for his success. Listen, you are such an interesting guy. You are uplifting, you are inspirational to be around. But you weren't always that way. No. no. I was an insecure, fearful, frightened little boy. I'll say this. I don't have any problem saying this. Now I'm 82. I don't care. <laughs> so anyway, I was doing a lot of drugs. LSD, you name it. I was doing it. The only thing I never did was mainline. I didn't do heroin, but I, I did snort it. I'm not proud of that, but that's who I was. You asked me, that's the Anthony that used to be. The pressure to be little Anthony was overwhelming until suddenly he realized what he had to do. Stop trying to be little Anthony. Be Jerome Anthony Gordine. I'm proud of that name now. I'm proud when I write it down. I am Jerome Anthony Gordine. That's who you are, not the tears on my no, pillow no, guy. No, that's what I do. Most artists, whether it be actors and singers, can't separate the two. What you just said there is something that all of us face in our lives. Everybody does. Yes. yes. The difference between who we are and what we do. Yes, sir. Yeah. I lived a riotous life, dude. I don't, don't, 
Don't get this athlete mixed up with that old athlete. Two different people. I mean, I did the number out there, you know? I should have been gone several times. I should not be here. Most of my peers aren't even here anymore. Who came up with me. And yet I'm here. Why am I here? I said to myself. But you have purpose. And that purpose is to do what I'm doing right now, talking to you. And look at you at 82. Do you, do you ever stop and think about that? I think all the time. I said, what the, like everybody else, where did it go? <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> what, just, what just happened? Because to me, in my mind, tears on my pillow was just a few years ago. But on the other hand, I was telling you earlier, someone wiser than me said, you ever see a car, the windshield is this big, and the, the rear view mirror is this big? You know what it is? Because where you're going is more important than where you came from. Oh. Even at 82? Even at 82. You see that every day, one day I take a time, but I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. And even though you get older, physically, this, I tell people, there's a 32-year-old guy inside of me. Do me a favor. Don't tell him he's 82. It'll, it'll upset him. Why do I come to this dreary place and wear such a deceiving face? Anthony Gordine is as happy as he's ever been because finally he and little Anthony are one and the same. He's at peace with what's in the rearview mirror, but even in his 80s, he's most excited about what lies on the road ahead. Do you miss those days? Oh, it was wonderful, but I don't miss them. Not, not in the sake, I want to go back to the old days. Oh, heck no. You know what mom and dad used to say? These are the good old days. We are. What an interesting guy. Anthony is still recording, still performing. In fact, he's been on the road for over 60 years and says he's enjoying it more than ever. He even now has a new Sirius XM radio show. As you heard when little Anthony asked himself why he was still here when so many of those he grew up with are not, his answer was purpose. And his purpose these days is sharing with all of us the idea that these are the good old days, and why we all need a rearview mirror to see and learn from where we've been. But it's the windshield that's most important. It's enjoying where we are now and looking forward to what's ahead. It's understanding that a key to growing older is always growing bolder. We'll see you next time.